Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parm Paget, a physical therapist, and I serve as secretary of the DDSIG. I am thrilled to be here today with Dr. Beth Fisher, Professor of Clinical Physical Therapy at the University of Southern California, Division of Biokinesiology and Physical Therapy. Welcome, Beth, and I'm excited to chat today. We like to have people introduce themselves a little bit, so why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Okay, thank you, and thank you for inviting me to join you today. I started working at Rancho Los Amigos National Rehabilitation Center. It was na- it was uh, Rancho Los Amigos Hospital at the time that I worked there in 1980. And that's the only place I ever worked clinically. So I mostly worked with brain injury and stroke patients and had the most amazing experience over and over and over again about the potential that they had, all the patients I saw, the potential they had to recover. And that's what um, 13 years later led me to go back to USC and get my PhD, thinking that I had to understand everything there was to know about the brain so that I could develop better interventions for accessing all the potential that I was witness to as a clinician. So Between Rancho and USC, I've basically stayed put. I love being at SC and I love being at Rancho, just very, very stimulating environments as far as, again, being around therapists, being around uh, researchers that, that their whole emphasis is how do we maximize potential? How do we take what we know about the potential that exists and really intervene with people in a way that access all the potential that they have. Yeah, and that and that brings us right to your Mailey lecture that you gave last year that was so wonderful. So for our listeners in our show notes, we will definitely have a link to that Mailey lecture, but um, it would be a great thing to check out and listen to either before or after listening to this podcast. And so the title of that lecture was Unmasking Potential Through Movement Discovery. So we will unpack that a little bit, but I just also wanted to tell you one of the things I loved about that talk is at the beginning when you talked about Daniel Wolpert and his TED Talk, because I heard that TED Talk many years ago, and I've often used that example of the sea squirts, like with my kids. And I I used to, we used to have a no trampoline rule, like my no trampoline rule was because like, I was like, you can break any bone in your body. You cannot hurt your nervous system. You need that (laughs) nervous system. And I would use that C squirt example. That's great. Yeah. So I love it. So, I mean, for, for our listeners out there, you should definitely check out this Ted talk by Daniel Warpert. And then when you listen to Beth's Manly lecture, you'll have a true appreciation of what she's talking about, but I totally, I love it. I agree. I think Um, his contention in that TED talk is that we, the reason that we have a central nervous system is to move. And when you don't need it, you use, you eat it for energy. (laughs) Right. Right. So that was awesome. I love that start. 
to the talk. And then from there, you sort of got into this concept of unmasking potential. So what do you mean by that, by unmasking potential? Well, first of all, let me just say that I was honored to be asked to, to give the Maley lecture, but it really gave me the opportunity to put forward a concept that has really shaped my clinical career. And that is the idea that a lot of the movement abnormalities or faulty movement patterns that we see in patients are not impairment driven and not lesion driven, but due to the fact that everyone, all of our patients make implicit choices, that they figure out how to get the job done in a way that compensates for some impairment and that many of the things that drive the abnormalities are the choices themselves, not necessarily the pathology. And, you know, I used a lot of different examples that I'd seen throughout my career and, uh, you know, and have continued to see. And I feel that physical therapy, we tend to be so impairment focused or so driven by a diagnosis. And instead, looking at the movement and looking at, which was, if I replicate the movement the way the patient is moving, I have the same outcome. My knee locks back. I can't advance my leg forward easily. I can't get up from a chair easily. So is it truly that everything that we observe in patients is lesion-driven or impairment-driven, or is at least some element of what we observe as their, their problems with movement due to the fact that they're figuring out how to get the job done in a way that gets them from point A to point B, but they're doing it in a compensatory way? Yeah, or and, they might they and they might need that compensation initially, right? But then as maybe they, they do, but the, and that's how they learn it. But then as they recover, it's never discovered, like right, because exactly. now they're moving in this new compensatory way. Because I, mean, I think the example yeah. of the ACL surgeries yeah. that you gave is a great right. example of people who, in a sit to stand activity, continue after all of their rehabilitation and back to sort of normal life they continue to shift weight onto that unaffected side because it's their new learned movement pattern, right? Yeah, it's, uh, that was actually, it's one of my favorite dissertations that's come out of our program. And one of my favorites because I sometimes I think when people talk about faulty movement or movement analysis, or they always think it's a neuro-related thing but it's not. It's not a neuro-related thing. It's a one side works the way it always did. One side has been injured or there's pain or there's been a stroke or someone has Parkinson's disease that's affecting one side more than the other. And they're making certain choices. They're making choices about getting the task accomplished with what works the best. So that study was one that Susan Sigward, who's a colleague of mine and is a sports researcher and, and comes from a sports background and as a physical therapist, her PhD student, Matt Chan, they published that study in um, 
2019. And it was Matt's dissertation work where he had people who were fully recovered from ACL reconstruction go from sit to stand. And they didn't know they were standing on force plates. And he basically just had them stand to do some other task in standing. And every single patient got up asymmetrically. So they loaded the unaffected side. And again, by every metric in physical therapy, they were fully recovered. They'd mm. been through rehab. Their, their strength was normal. Their range was normal. Their sensation was normal. But their um, uh, the habit that, it, that, you know, that they had developed maybe when they uh, initially were injured or initially had the surgery was you know, what, what they kept using. And now they're setting themselves up for an injury on the unaffected side, right? Yeah. And, and actually that's a really good point because um, one of the things that people have attributed to re-injury is lack of use, Mm -hmm. you know, again, just the tendency to, now you're talking about they're overloading perhaps their uninjured side and then they are at risk for injury on that side. But apparently their re-injury rate is very high after people have ACL tears and people are considering that it's due to this, you know, kind of quote unquote non-use. Yeah. Which I guess makes sense, right? Because if the limb is weak, and you're not building muscle to support that joint and to support, you know, mm-hmm. that reconstruction, then you're putting more pressure when you do use it. On the, I mean, the funniest yeah. part is they just had no idea. Yeah. You know, they didn't, they didn't know. And so then what Matt did is he had two conditions where they were instructed to load their limb more evenly. And then they were instructed with getting feedback. Mm-hmm. And they showed that under the instructed condition and the feedback condition, they were able to symmetrically go sit to stand 50% of their weight on both limbs. Um, so it wasn't a capacity issue at all. Right. They had full capacity yeah. to do it. They just didn't do it. Yeah. And, and I see the same thing with patients all the time. It's not just obviously not neurologic patients. It's patients that have often have one side that works and one side that isn't working as it used to, you know, again, over and over again, I had in the melee, I used upper extremity examples and lower extremity examples. Again, a typical patient coming up to standing and goes into, this is kind of the unmasking potential part. He goes into the sort of typical extensor pattern. That's what you would, uh, you know, would see, or many um, therapists would conclude, right? Oh, he's got an extensor, lower extremity extensor pattern because he's had a brain injury. Yeah. And yet, if you think about it biomechanically, the approach he takes to standing is to shift his weight over to the sound limb to keep his weight back. And then he kind of launches himself, throws himself forward over the sound limb and the opposite, the, the, uh, the involved limb locks back, the knee locks back, mm-hmm. you know, high velocity thrust back, he goes into extension and Again, if I moved the way he, if I replicated his movement, 
the same thing happens to me. So it tells us that at least some of what we're observing has a biomechanical basis. And it's It's, just, it's the way, the, one of the things I loved about what you said in the lecture is it's, you know, we give our patients these motor problems to solve and they choose how to solve the problem. And as a human, you're going to solve it in the easiest way possible in that moment. And so if that's how this gentleman started out, what you're saying then is then whoever's watching that movement assumes, oh, okay, he's got this synergistic pattern just because that's, it's, it's a whole new body, right? When somebody has a stroke or a brain injury, right. all of a sudden it's a whole new body. And so what you're saying is they start moving in that way. And then that's just their new learned pattern, even though there might be some potential to, yeah, do, to do I, it differently. To I, solve and that I'm not, problem. I'm, right. And I'm not trying to say a lot of times when I'm speaking about these people think I don't think a brain injury or stroke is any big deal. You know, it's yeah. like, of course it is. There is brain injury. There are impairments. It's not, it's not to say that there aren't. It's just that they move, they, they, they choose to move in ways that I think tip the scales and promote these patterns that we've always attributed to the neuropathology. And then I feel like we give up on them. Therapists are like, oh, it's an extensor pattern. Oh, it's a flexor pattern. Oh, you know, that's because they had a brain injury. That's because they had a stroke. And like, let's move on. I mean, wait a minute. Let's think about maybe there's some some layer here that has to do with the implicit choice they made to come up the way they did with the geometry of the body segments that they used with, you know, gravity acting on their system and all of that is producing this, this movement. And maybe if I approach it from that biomechanical perspective, I can see a different pattern emerge. And that's what happened in this young brain injury patient's case. I just worked with him on shifting his weight forward on and staying symmetrical on both legs. And he stood up and his leg didn't lock back. And did you use a mirror when you were doing the teaching? No, no. Uh-uh. He just, he could feel the difference. I mean, and his home exercise program was sit to stand, you know, I mean, I, you know, I've had, when I teach that with, with students, one of the priming activities I have them do is, okay, over the next week, I want you to count how many times you go from sitting to standing. If they've been documenting it over a week, they'll come back with in the thousands. Over one day, it might be in the hundreds. And I'm like, every single time somebody comes up from a chair, that's an opportunity to you know load their affected side and, and resistance against, against gravity. And uh, it's, a, it's an opportunity for treatment. Yeah. So um, that's what he did. And he just could, he could feel when his leg locked back. Right. And so that error taught him about what he needed to do. Again, thinking about motor learning in mm-hmm. this case, you know, he used the error information to inform the next attempt. Right. And he would get up in a way that his leg was looked like a normal limb and we never, ever touched his leg. Never, never went near his leg. Never. It was just working with how he transferred his weight to his feet. Right. And changed the pattern. So that's, you know, 
upper extremity example was always, you know, so simple. It's like everyone, everybody with stroke and everybody, uh, rotator cuff patients, they all elevate their scapula. They all lift their scapula. That is as much variability as there is with upper extremity movement. One thing we know for sure is I never, ever initiate motion with, with scapular elevation. Mm-hmm. And I, I know it sounds crazy, but I've had patients where I've just said, don't do that. Don't lift your, don't, don't lift your scapula. And they have normal shoulder flexion, elbow extension. Yeah. But yeah. once they lift their scapula, they go into that flexor pattern. So, right. you know, that's essentially the point I was making that there's always a layer that I think we as therapists can peel off that has to do with, you know, again, their implicit choices. When I say implicit, they're not consciously processing it. They're just wanting to get up. They're just wanting to get from point A to point B. They figure out how to do that. Right. And I I think sometimes, I, I mean, I feel like sometimes for me with patients, I'll try something, I'll give them a cue to sort of to try to peel back that layer. And it's bad cue, like they don't get it. And it totally doesn't work. And they're like, you know, and I find this a lot of times actually with gait. Um, and one of the things I learned from you back, way back in the day was um, to cue on the, to cue them for how they're moving the unaffected limb, which has been so helpful, right? Like if you can get somebody, you know, depending on the problem, but sometimes if you can get somebody in that trailing limb position, actually taking a bigger step with the unaffected side, you're setting that affected side up for success. So that's been helpful. But sometimes I try to use these cues and they don't work. And I think that's okay too, because we're mm-hmm. all learning, right? We're all, yeah, right. you're going to have as many sort of successes. So then you give them a slightly different cue and it does work. Like, you know, you just kind of have to keep trying, I think. Exactly. I mean, I feel like, you know, that's our that's our jobs. That's, that's what we do as, as physical therapists and specifically physical therapists that work with the neurologic population. We know, I mean, brain plasticity is, is, is a known entity. It's a given. And so if our jobs are about maximizing that recovery potential and I, you know, I mean, Dr. Gordon, Jim, Jim Gordon, who is the chair of Dean and chair of our division, and you all probably know James Gordon. Um, he, he said, You need to be controversial when you give the Mailey lecture. So I was controversial because, um, if you recall the times I said, you know, it does not take people at our level of education and skill and knowledge to hold on to somebody's gate belt as they figure out how to hop from point A to point B. I, right. I just, I, I think a lesser skilled person can do that. And, you know, it's valuable for the patient, giving them confidence, getting them to the next level of care. Um, but I, uh, I don't think that's what we're, you know, that's, that doesn't, that's not what we're meant to do. And the, you know, the other that I love that concept. I think you're totally right. We have so much, I think, to offer. Um, and and being able to provide that not just for our patients, but for you know our the other parts of the 
medical team so that they sort of appreciate what we're doing and how we're doing it, um, I think is great. And the other provocative thing that you brought up in that lecture was the movement system diagnosis, which I thought was really interesting because we actually had a podcast on the movement system diagnosis, which was very interesting. Um, and I have played around with using it a little bit in clinical practice, which has been um, fun. And, and I really have found a lot of what you're saying to be true is I'm just kind of changing around the words that I am using for the impairment, um, which I, you know, I don't necessarily think is, you know, I think there's a place for the movement system, particularly, and maybe you disagree with this, um, no. in, ed in education to help or the novice clinician to help them come up with a systematic way to look at and evaluate and characterize, classify people for the purposes of diagnosis. I, um, I totally agree. And I would just add to what they're doing with the movement system, implicit choice to factor that in. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like that piece, if, if that could be added to the, to the concept of the movement system, because in my mind, the movement system is repackaging impair an impairment focus, which is what we've done forever. And I, you know, my feeling is, let's take the ACL injury reconstruction, and those people were fully recovered. So, so is strengthening the limb is, you know, working on the impairment, did that modify how these people were moving? No. It was because they were just working at an impairment level. And, and from that impairment perspective, they uh, resolved them all. Mm -hmm. But they still moved abnormally or in this faulty way. So it, it's not enough. It's not enough to just address impairments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's all I, I think you're absolutely right, Parma. I would say, let's just add that piece to it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and people will say, well, implicit choices that when I say implicit choices, there's a lot of problem solving going on. And it could be someone who cannot participate with you intellectually. It doesn't need to be someone that's cognitively intact. In other words, I mean, I have a um, a great series of slides that I use a lot when I'm talking about uh, procedural learning and memory compared to declarative learning and memory. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's when I was at Rancho, um, we had this great media department and we, there was no, there was no computers at that time. And so these patients would start to do these things and we'd be like, get down here with your camera quickly. And I have a series of slides of a patient getting into bed, mm -hmm. a level four brain injury patient. And so it agitated, right? right? And completely unable to participate with you intellectually. And you think, well, he's getting into bed. So what? He is attached with hard restraints to his wheelchair. And you can imagine how many times he got up, fell back, got up, fell back, got up, fell back. And then on some level solved the problem of this weight behind that was attached to him. 
and lean forward far enough that he could manage the weight and crawl into bed. So it's you, even people that are cognitively not intact are going through this process of, you know, they have an, a goal. They want to get to that bed. They want to get, you know, across the room and they figure out how to do it. Mm-hmm. So that's all my biggest, I think my emphasis on the mainly was we need to be paying attention to that. Right. The and, tr- and I, yeah. And that's the part I think that, that brings the true value of what we are and what we're doing. Cause we are watching people do some kind of goal-based movement. I think you're right. It's not enough to just identify what's causing them to do it, but to identify how are they solving that problem? And, you know, I don't want to use the words good or bad, but is it potentially maladaptive or is there, you know, a better way that we could shape that movement um, going forward? So I like that. I love that idea. Well, now you've given me like homework. Like now I have to try to to add in that, that implicit choice piece when I'm, you know, documenting on a patient. And, and you would, you would ask me about, okay, so how can we apply this same concept? You know, it's relatively, I, I, through the melee, I applied it to, um, I, my examples were patients with stroke and, and, uh, some examples of patients with ACL reconstruction or, you know, osteoarthritis of the knee or hip or something like that. But it was generally one side works like it always did and one side doesn't. Now you have a patient with Parkinson's disease, maybe they have, you know, they're more involved on one side than the other, but they still have involvement on both sides as they progress. I had a student who was going to a, basically a movement disorder clinic. And it was before his semester where he had Parkinson's disease, you know, he had the basal ganglia neuroscience Parkinson's disease, neuropathology, uh, you know, clinical management of an individual. He before that, okay, and he was like freaked out. That's what he got assigned in his clinical, uh, you know, during the his summer affiliation. And he was like, "I'm trying to read everything I can about the basal ganglia. I'm just, you know, <laughs> I don't know what to do." And I said, "I go, let's do a little experiment. Forget about the diagnosis. You'll learn. You'll learn from your CI, and you'll learn from working with the patients. Just forget about that for a while. Let's mm-hmm. take a totally movement analysis perspective, and and let's let's just try that because he'd already had movement analysis with Chris Powers and myself. That that was his first year, and he well, the pictures he sent me were pictures of patients that you know, had not necessarily freezing of gait, but, you know, trouble with initiating stepping. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were in such a flexed posture and there was so much, you know, trunk and hip flexion that, you know, it's kind of one of those, oh, no wonder, no wonder they can't advance their limb. Who could if you're in that much flexion? So he took away any fear associated with forward progression by having them lean, I mean, like really exaggerated lean, like a uh, kind of like Superman, mm-hmm. <laughs> leaning into this really thick band that he had attached to the like walls. And so their hip, their pelvis was just kind of leaning forward, and then they could just step without any problem. So essentially he's it's a biomechanical approach it's it's not, it's not thinking oh they have parkinson's disease 
no wonder they're so flexed. It's thinking, well, I would have trouble initiating uh, hip flexion if I'm starting in that much flexion of my of my trunk, and so and and not progressing forward with hip extension. Right. So he, you know, picture after picture I have of of him just having these patients just leaning forward. And, you know, when I say leaning their, their hip, like probably the first thing that was like entering the room, kind of their pelvis. Right. I'm picturing like a ski jumper. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like I'm trying to think of what would be a good analogy. You have to be on the East coast for that ski jumper (laughs) (laughs) or Colorado or something. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the reason I I was saying like Superman, you know, like kind of just that leaning forward. And, um, but, but it took away, it, it made them feel confident that nothing catastrophic was going to happen if they achieved that position and then they could just step and then have the experience of how easy it was to step forward. So yes, they still have Parkinson's disease. There's, there's still, you know, those issues. But to me, that was kind of peeling off that layer that is the biomechanical component, the, you know, that we'd all be under, you know, we'd all be subject to. Right. One of the things that um, I struggle with sometimes with people with Parkinson's um, or neurodegenerative diseases in general is that particularly as the disease progresses, their movement quality degrades. And really, we just want to keep them moving. So, you know, I think particularly as we're getting more and more into this idea of intensity and intense exercise, and we find it's really helping people, how much do we necessarily like care about the way something looks versus just getting them to do it? And um, that was one of the things I was curious because you're doing, you've been doing work with that sort of aerobic intensity stuff with people with Parkinson's too, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, in our 2008 paper, though, when we were and I and I'm I'm very proud of that fact that, you know, along with 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 people like Terry Ellis and Gammon Earhart and and Lee Dibble and you know I'm not naming everyone but, you know, key people that I've worked with. But along with them, I'm very proud of the fact that um, our group is part of this group of people that really changed. I think changed the way physical therapy works with people with Parkinson's disease. I mean, up until that time, we never, up until, you know, 20 years ago, our approach was really helping people adjust as they decline. Yeah. Compensatory. Totally. Yeah. But it wasn't about, can we push them and, and achieve greater outcomes? So in the 2008 paper, when we really, and that was what was so cool. We had, that was the paper with these pet singer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, I did my post-talk with an animal model of Parkinson's disease. And then um, as much as I got attached to my little mice, I couldn't wait to get back to this translation to humans. And we used treadmill walking and we, and we had a high intensity group, but we didn't just throw them on the treadmill and just crank up the velocity they had to walk with an observationally observationally normal gait pattern or running pattern. And so we were giving them feedback about that. And so that's where we've, we've really come up with this idea that 
it's aerobic intensity, but it's also a skill acquisition process. Right. It seems to be that combination, that that synergy seems to be what helps people recover the most, that they're, they're problem solving how to move in a more ideal way. And they're also um, getting that, that, you know, brain health by, by increasing their aerobic capacity. Um, now, you know, think about hiking sticks. So many people with Parkinson's disease are really benefiting from those. And yes, it's increasing the base of support. They have contact, you know, they have points of contact with the pole, but it's keeping them upright. It's making yeah. them stand up straighter. It's, it's giving them a little bit more, you know, again, the, con the, the concern of falling is less because they have these points of contact. But I, I, I don't know if it's quality, Parm. I don't know that I'd call it quality or, you know, again, optimizing their, their capability by thinking about getting that erect posture, getting that alignment. Yeah. When we're watching somebody, you know, in a one-on-one -on -one therapy session on a treadmill and they start, they're moving intensely, but their posture starts to degrade, we'll correct, you know, give a cue or provide some kind of um, environmental type of cue for, for that. The way I like to think of it and explain it to my patients is that this Aerobic activity is basically priming your brain to really incorporate what you're learning, what your body is learning. Mm -hmm. um, That's nice. And I, you know, I think that that, I think that that is easy for people to, or, you know, they understand that because they, they can feel it. They feel better oftentimes after they do it. Mm -hmm. And I like the idea too, of the trekking poles, because, um, you know, not only does it, improve people's posture, but depending on how you use them, if you're really using them, bringing in that upper extremity also can increase the intensity. Mm -hmm. um, yep. Yep. Yeah. Which is, it's nice. I think too often we're, we're, we get excited when we see a patient move in a, in a way that, you know, surprises us and, and, and we, get excited and they're excited, we're excited. And we're forgetting about the fact that they're not going to probably um, be motivated to keep moving that way unless they experience that there's some change in their ability. You know what I mean? Sometimes I feel like they get, they're, they're, they're moving in a better way because we get so excited about it and we sometimes forget. They need to have that aha of, wow, I didn't realize I could step so quickly. I didn't realize I could, they, if they don't have some, if they don't experience some benefit of moving in a way that costs them, you know, they have to think about it. They might be slower at first, right? So there is a cost involved. And the only way people are going to make that investment is if they experience that there's a benefit. Right. And so I work, when I'm working with my patient, I want them to compare the outcome they have when they do it their way with the outcome they have when they do it my way or a different way and have that, oh, wow, I didn't, you know, and with Parkinson's, it would be like how quick and easy it is to step maybe right. if they're up more upright. Right. Or, or what it feels like to up, you know, with that better positioning to up the intensity on the, the speed on the treadmill. 
you know, a lot of times people are right. surprised themselves at what they can do. I know that that's like the best thing. Yeah. When yeah. patients are like, I didn't realize I could do that. I didn't realize my leg could hold me. I didn't, it's like, man. And, and the reason, and you know, I say this a lot in the mainly, the reason they don't realize it is because they've never tried. Right. And one of the things that we get to do is provide them that safe environment and mm-hmm. the, and the confidence to try that, which I think is huge. Well, Beth, I feel like you've given us a ton to think about for sure. Um, very rich conversation. We typically like to ask people who like you are very accomplished and busy, but you can't work all the time. So what do you do when you're not working? Well, let's say I was heading in this direction and then the COVID-19 isolation thing has definitely pushed me more to becoming a crazy old bird woman. I mean, I, (laughs) I have like bird feeders in my backyard and today, today I saw two yellow hooded Orioles at my hummingbird feeder. So they drink nectar Orioles. I I know I didn't know this. Yeah, I know. So that's one thing. (laughs) Um, The other thing is that, um, and it's something I talk about a lot with my Whenever I talk about the Parkinson's research that we that we've done, and the the you know work we've been a part of again, like with Terry Ellis and and Lee Dibble and Gammon Earhart and Dan Corcos and among other people, I always say I feel completely confident telling my patients they need to be exercising because I, at my age, I love boxing. So that is, I love boxing. And, you know, again, I, I think, you know, Gammon Earhart has studied tango dancing and shown benefits of that. There's benefits of Tai Chi in Parkinson's patients. There's benefits of, of, of boxing. There's benefits of, you know, cycling. Right. And I don't think it's about what people are doing, the mode of exercise. I right. think it's about what you love doing. And I love boxing because I've probably never done anything that is more cognitively challenging than Mm -hmm. than boxing. Um, I don't, it's not boxing to hurt someone or hit someone. I don't do that. You don't Um, do any sparring? I I have, I have, and I've gotten (laughs) the black eye to (laughs) prove it. And usually I'm hitting myself in the face with my, my, my glove. But um, it's just, it's, it's aerobic, it's resistance, it's balance, and it's cognitively so challenging because I have this amazing coach who chunks all of these offensive, def- defensive moves in something like peanut butter and jelly. Peanut butter and jelly is about, mm, let's say, 15 offensive, defensive moves you know, jab, cross, slip, uppercut, you know, weave, blah, blah, blah. I don't think about it as each individual, you know, movement. I think I run off peanut butter and jelly. (laughs) So, uh, and then I have to switch to something else that he, you know, yells out for me to do. So I like uh, hitting focus mitts. Yeah. One of the things that, you know, um, I have seen people with Parkinson's who, where we've tried to incorporate some boxing into group classes or whatever. 
And one of the things I love is that the women who at, at first are like, I don't want to do that. And then they love it. And then they have us, you know, play the theme to Rocky and take a video of them <laughs> to show their husbands when they get home. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, I think for women too, it's a great, it's empowering just to be, just to like do something where you feel strong. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I just, it's wonderful. And, uh, and yeah. then the last piece I do, which is again in the exercise, but one of my colleagues, Cornelia Kulig, who is also really well known in physical therapy, more in the musculoskeletal world, she and I go into the hills in, in the Pasadena area all the time. But um, we take my dogs. And uh, so I'm also a crazy dog person. I'm a crazy, now I'm a, becoming a crazy bird woman. And uh, I've always been a kind of a crazy dog person, but I love going into the hills with my dog. So that's three things. Yeah, I don't, that's three no. great things. <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, Beth, thank you for joining us this evening. Oh, thank you. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I think our listeners will get um, a ton out of it. And we really, th- there's a lot of things we barely touched on. It didn't talk about at all. So we hope you will consider at some point coming back and chatting with us again in the future. I would love that. And thank you both for inviting me. I really was honored. It's a real honor to, to be, you know, invited by this group to come and talk. So thank you. This podcast was produced by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. Please share this episode with a colleague or a friend. This episode was edited by Sarah Crandall with help from Katie McGraw and Karen Paget. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. And I already told Beth that we usually do bloopers. I'm becoming a crazy, crazy old bird woman. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. you know, yes, electricity had been invented <laughs> not that long ago. There was running <laughs> water. <laughs> there was running water. It's so typical that we are given the honor and privilege of doing more work for no more money, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So my husband's always like, are you getting paid for this? Actually, what's worse is we're all, we're all tend to be, oh, I'm getting paid. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, I actually, I actually put makeup on. For the, I know, for I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I know I'm usually in pajamas for this. Um, today I'm not, but usually I am. Okay. <laughs>